Today's scripture reading is from James chapter 1, verse 27 to chapter 2, verse 13. Religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless is this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. My brothers and sisters, believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ must not show favoritism. Suppose a man comes into your meeting wearing a gold ring and fine clothes, and a poor man in filthy old clothes also comes in. If you show special attention to the man wearing fine clothes and say, here's a good seat for you, but say to the poor man, you stand there or sit on the floor by my feet. Have you not discriminated among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my dear brothers and sisters, has not God chosen those who are poor in the eyes of the world to be rich in faith and to inherit the kingdom he promised those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor. Is it not the rich who are exploiting you? Are they not the ones who are dragging you into court? Are they not the ones who are blaspheming the noble name of him to whom you belong? If you really keep the royal law found in scripture, love your neighbor as yourselves, as yourself you are doing right. But if you show favoritism, you sin and are convicted by the law as lawbreakers. For whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles at just one point is guilty of breaking all of it. For he who said you shall not commit adultery also said you shall not murder. If you do not commit adultery but do commit murder, you have become a lawbreaker. Speak and act as those who are going to be judged by the law that gives freedom. Because judgment without mercy will be shown to anyone who has not been merciful. Mercy triumphs over judgment. The grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of our God endures forever. Well, if I haven't met you yet, uh, my name is Aaron. Uh, I'm one of the pastors at Exilic, and for the past few weeks, we've been doing a sermon series that we've entitled uh, The Go Campaign. Uh, and the reason why we're doing this series is because our church has been awesome about telling people to come to our church. But as we approach our four-year anniversary in just two weeks... Uh, it is equally important not just to tell people to come to our church, but also for our community to go out into our city and into our world, and in particular to those that are poor, distressed, and uh, marginalized in our society. Uh, the three places that I have lived uh, for the most part of my uh, adult life is uh, China, uh, L.A., and New York. And I would say that the one commonality about these three places is that the neighborhood that I always lived in happened to always be around poverty. So almost on a weekly basis, if not a daily basis, I was always approached for money. And so one of the questions that I have had to ask myself, and one question I get asked frequently is, when someone asks us for money, do we give money or not? Do you know what the answer to that question is? The answer is, it depends. It depends. I can think of a scenario where the most prudent thing for you to do at that moment would be to give money to that person that is in distress. And I can think of other scenarios where it would not be prudent for you at all to give money to that person that is distressed. So the answer is, it depends. But there is one thing that we must always give to those that are poor and those that are distressed, and that is our respect. 
What does it look like to respect those that are poor, marginalized, oppressed, disenfranchised? It means you look at them in the eye and you acknowledge their humanity and the God-likeness that they are. And so if you take a look with me at verse 27 at the very top of the page, James says that religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless is this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. I find it very interesting that on the second line, James says to look after orphans and widows. He doesn't say that we are called to take care of orphans and widows, but he says that we are called to look after orphans and widows. And what he's saying here is this, before we care for other people, we must first learn to look at other people in the right way. You know, just this morning, just two hours ago, as I was walking to church, I came, uh, I was a few minutes early, and as I was walking to church, I got approached, and the person that was standing on the corner said, excuse me, can you buy me an iced coffee? And I said, sure. And so we go to the cart that's right on the corner, right outside here, and it just dawned on me that I had no cash. And so I said, I'm so sorry, I have no money. And so he says, well, actually, there's Speedy's, the deli right on the corner, uh, and they'll accept the credit card. And so, so, so I said, let's go. And so as we're walking our 30-second walk up, up the block, I said, um, uh, don't you think it's a little bit cold for iced coffee? Don't you want, like, hot coffee? And he said, you know, now that you think about it, I do want hot coffee. And so we go into Speedy's, uh, and I said, do you want anything else? And he said, actually, if you wouldn't mind can I also get a croissant? And I said, of course. And so, uh, so we're standing online. Uh, the cashier is just sort of looking at us sort of strange. And uh, he gets one cup of coffee, hot coffee, with a lot of sugar for a certain reason. And uh, he, he buys a croissant. And he said, thank you. He said, I've been standing on this corner of 31st and Broadway for 20 minutes. And no one even looked at me. Everyone just walked by and didn't even glance at me. They just swiped left. And he said, thank you for looking at me. And I thought, how fitting is that as we're taking a look at James chapter 2? And it dawned on me that one of the reasons why I just swipe left is because I'm so busy all the time and my life is so chaotic and I'm so busy and I'm walking 100 miles an hour that if I'm going to learn how to look at people and see the imago dei, the image of God in other people, I need to learn how to slow down and to recognize the humanity and the image of God that is in every person. And so before we even talk about doing anything for the poor, before we do anything, we first have to think differently and rewire our minds about how we think about the poor and marginalized first. So take a look with me at verses uh, 1 through 4. And James gives a hypothetical situation here. And he says, my brothers and sisters, believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ, 
uh, must not show favoritism. Suppose a man comes into your meeting wearing a gold ring and fine clothes, and a poor man in filthy old clothes also comes in. If you, if you show special attention to the man wearing fine clothes and say, here's a good seat for you, but say to the poor man, you stand there or sit on the floor by my feet, have you not discriminated among yourselves and become judges uh, with evil thoughts? You know, what's so fascinating is that in verse 1, James talks about favoritism. What, what does favoritism mean? Favoritism is discrimination based upon shallow externals. And in the Greek, this word favoritism is actually in the plural. So it says, do not show favoritisms. In other words, do not show any kind of discrimination, whether it's based on gender, race, attractiveness, education, someone's age. We are not, uh, we're told not to show discrimination of any kind. And in this hypothetical situation, He talks about a poor man and a rich man walking into church. The rich man is given a seat of honor. The poor man is told to sit on the floor or just stand up for the entire service. And when I hear this story, I can't think about our own nation's history when at one point, white people could sit anywhere on the bus, but black people were forced to sit on the back of the bus. And if you take a look at verse 4, James says that this kind of discrimination is evil. And the reason why James says that this kind of discrimination is evil is because every one of us, regardless of gender, sexual orientation, occupation, age, every single one of us is made in the image of God. And when we don't treat or recognize one another this way, it is evil. It's not right. This is not the way that we ought to uh, treat one another. So here's the question. What does it mean then to be made in the image of God? Well, think about it this way. Imagine this, bo- this banner here is a large boulder. Imagine standing in front, the, in front of this boulder. Can you see your reflection? No, you can't. This boulder is incapable of reflecting back to you your image. Now imagine that this banner here is a large mirror. Is this mirror capable of reflecting back to you your image? Yes, it is. We are not like boulders. We are like mirrors. We reflect back the image of God. And when I say the image of God, I don't mean that God looks like us in the sense that he has two eyes, a nose, a mouth, two ears. What I mean by that is that we are capable of reflecting back his character, his attributes, his empathy, his kindness, his compassion. We have that capability. C.S. Lewis said that if we really understood this concept, that we are all made in the image of God, if we understood just how magical and special each and every one of us are, we would be tempted to worship one another. Because that is how magical each and every one of us are. And yet, we don't treat each other this way. And so the question is, why? If we are all made in the image of God, why can't we see that in one another? Now think about it this way. Imagine you take this mirror into a very dark room and you close the door. Is that mirror now capable of reflecting back to you your image? No, it's not. It's lost its power because it's in the dark. And similarly, our hearts have become darkened. 
And so in many ways, we're not capable of reflecting back the image of God the way that we ought to. We see glimpses of it, shadows of it, distortions of it, but we don't reflect the image of God the way that we ought to anymore. And I'll give you an illustration of what we look like now. A few years ago, um, Hannah and I went to Rome, and we went to the Vatican, uh, and we went to St. Peter's Basilica. And if you go to St. Peter's Basilica, there you will see the only sculpture that Michelangelo ever autographed, and it is his Pietà. The Pietà is a sculpture of Michelangelo, uh, not Michelangelo, Mary, holding her crucified son who had just been hung on the cross. Uh, And this sculpture uh, was constructed in 1500, where it stood largely undisturbed for almost 500 years until in 1972, a vandal broke past security with a hammer in his hand, and he began smashing the Pietà. Mary's uh, veil was smashed, her left eye was smashed, her left arm was smashed. And eventually security got a hold of the vandal, but the damage had already been done to this masterpiece of Renaissance art. This masterpiece of Renaissance art had now become a marred masterpiece. And over the course of the next year, experts began putting back the shards, the marble, back together to recreate the Pieta again. And in many ways, that is what you and I are. We are a masterpiece, but we are a marred masterpiece. And we no longer reflect the image of God the way that we ought to, but within each and every one of us at our core, we see glimpses of it. And in fact, God is in the business of putting back together our fractured and fragmented hearts so that we can be who we were always meant to be. I love the way that uh, uh, if you turn it to your, or the, the first page of your bulletin, Simon Blocker puts it, he has this phrase that I absolutely love. It's the, the second quote uh, in your bulletin. And Blocker says, man as he is by nature is not as he was when God created him. A vast devastation has struck him. Nevertheless, he is great in his ruins, like a glorious cathedral after a bombing. I love that phrase. Like a glorious cathedral after a bombing. Sinful man still displays the grandeur which was his when he first stood on the earth as created in God's image. Man is but the wreck of what he once was, but even so, he is capable of immense good. Now, I have just given you a reason why we should not discriminate, because we are all made in the image of God. I've also given you a reason why we do discriminate, because we are broken image of God. We are broken image of God. And I've also given you a reason why we should still love one another anyway, because God is putting back together our fractured and fragmented hearts again. Now, what is the secular reason for why we should not discriminate? Well, one of my, actually my favorite philosopher is actually Friedrich Nietzsche. And one of the reasons why I love Friedrich Nietzsche is because he does this thing called philosophical squinting. And so he squishes his eyebrows together and he says, but why do you believe that? Or what is the basis for why you're saying that? He always asks the question, why? And Tim Keller has this uh, uh, fictional conversation, although 
it really sounds like it could be true, of young Frederick Nietzsche. And Nietzsche has a thick mustache still, and he goes to this political rally where he hears a politician speak. And after the politician is done speaking, young Frederick Nietzsche has a conversation with the politician, and this is how the conversation goes. The politician says, the quality of a society is how it treats its weakest members. And Nietzsche says, well, I disagree. All safety nets should be removed so only the fittest survive. After all, that's how it works in nature. And the politician says, no, they're human beings. You can't treat them like that. Nietzsche says, well, bioethicists can't agree on what a human being is. After all, many pro-life people say that the fetus is a person. Pro-choice people say that it is not. The category of a human being is actually a useless category. So the politician says, well, the poor must not be treated as objects to be used instrumentally. They are valuable person as ends in themselves. You must not use them as a means to an end. And Nietzsche says, look, I've read Immanuel Kant, and I don't like him. It's impossible to treat people as an ends and not as means. It sounds high and lofty, but it's impossible. People have to die in order that other people can live. Let's do what's most efficient. And the politician says, we can't be indifferent towards the poor. Because if we are, there will be even more social problems and society will work better if we take care of them. Nietzsche says, well, for every pragmatic argument that you marshal for the poor, there are other pragmatic arguments on the other direction. For example, just let the poor die or let the poor migrate to another country. That would be even more efficient. This time, the politician is very angry and he says, it would be unethical to let the poor starve. And young Nietzsche says, well, in a secular society, who's to say what is ethical and unethical? How dare you say that everybody has to decide for themselves what's wrong or right for them? And then demonstrably say that it's unethical to neglect the poor. Now, is, is Keller saying that if you're not religious, if you're secular, that you're incapable of doing good? Absolutely not. He is not saying that at all. I would hate to live in a world where only religious people take care of the poor. But what Keller is saying is that there isn't a lot of weight for the basis for why you take care of the poor. Do you see that distinction? The reason why we are called to take care of the poor and the disenfranchised and the marginalized is because we believe that every human being is made in the image of God. And when we forget that, that is when we start to mistreat one another. And so everything hinges on this idea that we are made in his image. And James goes as far as to say that the poor, in fact, are not only made in the image of God, but they are our greatest teachers. And so if you take a look with me at verse 5, verse 5, James says, Listen, my dear brothers and sisters, has not God chosen those who are poor in the eyes of the world to be rich in faith and to inherit the kingdom he promised those who love him. Now here, why is it that God would choose the poor to inherit the kingdom, and why not the rich? Is he saying that if you make over a certain amount of money in your salary, you can't go to heaven, but if you make under a certain amount, you can go to heaven? I don't think that's what he's saying. Because if you do a word study on the word poor, it not only means those that are financially afflicted, but it also means those that are morally afflicted. 
And while not all of us are financially afflicted, all of us are morally afflicted. You know, I was, uh, I was talking with Edwin uh, this past week. Edwin was our guest speaker at our retreat, and he spoke uh, last Sunday at our church. And Edwin's church uh, looks very different from ours. His church's name is called Recovery House of Worship. And the reason why they use the word recovery is because there are so many drug addicts and, and people that are just recovering from a very, very painful and difficult life in his community. Now, if I was at Edwin's church and I was preaching to a demographic that has largely been shunned and is poor, you know what I would preach? I would remind my brothers and sisters of their high standing in Christ, that even though the world kicks at them, and even though they're marginalized, I would always remind them that they are royalty, that they are sons and daughters of God, and that an eternal inheritance that no one can take away awaits them. I would remind these low people of their high standing. But now if you take a look at our church, where everyone is pretty educated, successful, middle class, upper class, when we have a high standing, it is important for us as a community to remember our low standing. You know why? Because everyone in society already applauds you because of the schools that you went to because of what you do, because we're so resume-driven and our resumes look pretty good. And so you already get the high standing from our society. And so what we need to remember then is our low standing, that we are all morally afflicted. Can I give you an example of this? I was watching a donut commercial a few years ago, a donut commercial. And in this commercial, it deeply moved me, by the way. Um, it really did. There's a wealthy businessman that's catching a flight back home. And he has some time to kill, so he goes to this very fancy French bakery, and he buys five donuts. He takes, he, they, they put the donuts in the paper bag, and he takes it to the public lounge area, drops his suitcase down on the floor, takes off his coat, folds it nicely, puts it right on the stool next to him, opens up the Wall Street Journal, and is reading the paper. A few minutes later, someone sits directly across from him. And he takes a look at the man, and he sees that the man looks kind of disheveled, even homeless-like. So he goes back to reading his paper, and then a few minutes later, he hears a ruffle in the bag. And the poor man is putting his hands in the bag of donuts. And he takes one of the donuts, one of the five, and begins to eat it. And the wealthy businessman puts down his paper, and he does a philosophical squinting, and he says, what are you doing? But seeing that he looks a little disheveled and poor, it's, he clearly needs it, and I have four anyway, and so he goes back to reading the paper, but he thinks to himself, just so he knows that these are my donuts, I'm going to put my hand in my bag of donuts and eat a donut. And so he puts his hand in the bag and starts eating a donut and begins reading the Wall Street Journal again. A few minutes later, he hears a ruffle in the back again. And that poor disheveled man, again, <laughs> has the audacity to put his hands in the bag and grabs the third donut. And so this time, the wealthy businessman is thinking, what the heck, what's your problem? But he doesn't want to get into an argument because clearly the guy you know, sort of needs this. But just so he knows that these are my donuts, the wealthy businessman puts his hands in the donuts and grabs now the fourth donut. And he thinks to himself, surely... He doesn't have the audacity to eat the fifth and final donut. And so he begins reading the paper again. And then, lo and behold, 
that man puts his hands in for the fifth and final donut. He puts his papers down, and they just stare intently at one another for what seems like an eternity. And the poor disheveled man all of a sudden breaks in half the fifth and final donut, gives it to the wealthy man, and walks away. Now the wealthy man is completely puzzled. Uh, He doesn't know whether to be offended or to thank him for at least giving him half the donut. (laughs) And then all of a sudden he hears a prompter and his flight is boarding. Folds up the Wall Street Journal, picks up his suitcase, picks up his coat. And underneath his coat, his bag of donuts had been there the entire time. That poor man wasn't robbing the wealthy man. The wealthy man was the one that was robbing the poor man. But it was the poor man that was sharing with him his donuts. See, a million is just a a statistic until you meet just one. And when you meet just one, it changes the way that you begin to view people. You no longer view people uh, the same way anymore. I like the way that the rapper Jackie Hill Perry puts it when she said, do you know why we don't do missions trips to rich suburban neighborhoods? Because Christians mistakenly believe that the impoverished are unrighteous while the affluent and wealthy are righteous, which is why going on a missions trip to Africa sounds so much more noble than going on a missions trip to Western Europe. My point is, while not all of us are financially afflicted, clearly, clearly, all of us are morally afflicted. We don't treat one another uh, the way that we ought to. And so one of the things that the Apostle Paul says in Corinthians is that from now on, if you are a Christian, we regard no one from a human point of view. I love that. From now on, we regard no one from a human point of view. In other words, we don't discriminate anymore. Instead, we regard everyone from God's point of view. Well, what does God's point of view look like on us? Well, Rick Warren was once uh, preaching at a prison, and there was no stage like this, but he did have a microphone, but he was preaching to 5,000 prisoners, but there were only a couple hundred that were actually listening. Everyone else was playing basketball or something else, but he did have a microphone that everyone could clearly hear, and so Rick Warren had an idea, and so he takes a $50 bill out of his wallet, and he says, who here wants this $50 bill? And immediately, 5,000 hands go up, and then Rick Warren crumbles the $50 bill, and he says, now who wants the $50 bill? 5,000 hands go up. He throws the $50 bill onto the dirt floor and begins stepping on it. Picks it up and he says, now who wants the $50 bill? 5,000 hands go up. And Rick Warren says, for most of you, for most of your life, this is how you have been treated by society. You have been ostracized and rejected by your family. You You have had dirt kicked on you. And you have done some shameful things yourself. But there is one thing that you need to know this afternoon, and that is this. You have not lost one cent of your value in God's eyes 
just like this $50 bill has not lost one cent of his value. This is how God treats us. This is how God looks at us, that no matter what you have done, no matter what you have done, his POV, his point of view, is one of indiscriminate love. You know why? Take a look with me at the very last phrase of our text in verse 13. And it says that mercy triumphs over judgment. The word triumph that is used here is a military word, which means to uh, defeat or be victorious over. And here it says that mercy is victorious over judgment. And the reason why we experience mercy instead of the judgment that we deserve for our moral affliction is because someone else took the judgment in our place. Jesus, this is the reason why he died on the cross for our discrimination and our prejudice and our endless amount of other sins. And when you think about it, when Jesus was dying on the cross, he didn't say, I'm only going to die for Jews and not Americans. I'm only going to die for the uneducated and not the educated. I'm only going to die for the sexually pure and not the sexually impure. I'm only going to die for those that do a 20-minute quiet time in the morning and not for those that don't. His love was indiscriminate. So why is our love so discriminate? If he loves us so unconditionally, why is our love so conditional? It can't be. You know, if, if you really want something, you'll do anything for it. And it really shows what you value, right? The fact that God was willing to do anything for us, indiscriminately, no matter how we have lived our lives, shows how much God valued each and every one of us. And the more you think about that, how valued and loved you are, you can then be unleashed into our world and love those uh, the way that God loves other people with his perspective instead of regarding people from a human point of view. Well, there's a, uh, there's a lot that we are thinking right now as a staff about in terms of ideas as to how we can serve you best um, and how we can sort of uh, use our church as a launch pad to actually care for the poor and the vulnerable. But we do want to bake on, on these ideas a little bit more before we introduce them to you. But all this to say, it is coming. We're excited. We're really pumped up about it. And I am excited for what God is going to do through our community. Um, I once heard this, and I'll close with this, and I, I can verify this as a fact because I haven't done a lot of this myself, but they say that when people are on their deathbed, uh, they don't usually regret the mistakes that they've made in the past. But when people are on their deathbed, the one thing that they do regret is that they didn't do enough with the life they were given. And I don't want us to have that regret. I want us to do as much as we can to contribute to those that are in need. Because much has been given to us. Let's pray together. God, we realize that uh, if you are very discriminant, it's very possible most of us would be in our sins and without any hope. But because of your indiscriminate love for us, even when we look nothing like you, 
We thank you for your grace and mercy. It is my prayer that as recipients of grace and mercy, we can extend it to those in need because mercy triumphs over judgment. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.